0: This is an ABC podcast. So my name is Anita Zanella. I'm a researcher at the Instituto Nazionale di Astrofisica, the National Institution for Astrophysics in Italy.
1: And Anita is here to help us listen to the stars, appreciate the universe, with our ears. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. Now, if you're already scratching your head, wondering how it's possible to hear the astronomical wonders of the heavens, given that sound waves don't travel through space, well, good call. But there is a way in which the movement of the planets and stars, for example, can be tracked, studied and appreciated using sound. It's a process called data sonification.
0: Sonification means uh, using sound to translate data, which usually are are numbers, into something that is a bit more meaningful and something we can explore and understand. In the case of astronomy, we are used to, to seeing these beautiful images of the sky, but in reality, what we receive from telescopes and instrumentation are numbers that we usually translate into images. What we are trying to do and investigate is whether we can use sound to make sense let's say of these numbers and explore these data sets and so sonification means to use sound to represent data astronomical data in this case
1: and here's an example of what we're talking about what you're hearing is a sonification of various stars using data from the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope, or VLT, located in South America.
0: I used to think that we explore reality in a multisensory way using all the senses that we have. And so why do we have to limit our job and our research by using only one sense, which is sight? We could make research multisensory as well. So that's the goal to me. And in the same way, we can make multisensory, not only the research, but also the outreach and the education. And I think that would become a lot more engaging and probably effective. So towards this goal, one of the things that we are doing is to organize an astronomy festival, which is completely multisensory. So all the activities involve at least two senses, and of course, sonification will be one of the main techniques that will be used there. What I plan to achieve there is to, again, test the effectiveness of uh, sonification with the public, but also to see whether the public is more engaged when sonification is used and whether it is more, let's say, attracted by scientific disciplines. Understanding what are the benefits of sonification will allow us to understand what are the future directions to push you and what to push, when to use it and how.
1: And that festival, the universe and all senses, is set to be held in June in Italy.
2: The potential for sonification falls in a few different categories. The first one is taking full advantage of our auditory system's capability of pattern recognition. Bruce Walker,
1: a professor of both psychology and computing at the Georgia Institute of Technology.
2: We've already seen examples of people listening to their data and making scientific discoveries. We will see more of that as we listen to the data that are coming from the stars and from the skies. One of the earliest applications of sonification was in astronomy with the Cassini mission in the 60s. More recently, we're seeing a fantastic resurgence of astronomy using sonification to share information and data about the sun and about science related to the sun, and even more recently about the images and the information that's coming from the space telescopes, the Hubble and the James Webb telescopes. There are a number of fantastic reasons for using sound to represent data. In one case, You might consider situations where a person can't look or they can't see. They might not be able to look because their eyes are busy driving or they're busy doing surgery if they're a doctor, or they might be doing some other task that requires all their visual attention. So in that case, they can't really look. We can use sound to present information to them in that context. They might also not be able to see because they're a firefighter in a smoky building or a soldier running through the forest at night. So if you can't look or you can't see, your visual system is not really useful for presenting data. In that case, we turn to sound. It's a fantastic way of sharing with a user what's going on around them or something about their battery life or their fuel levels or their altitude or any kind of data that we might want to present. In addition to that can't look or can't see situation, the auditory system is a fantastic pattern recognition device. We accomplish speech by listening to changes in a a person's voice over time. We can use the same capabilities to listen for changes in a data set. So if you're looking for patterns or changes in some planet or a star or some other astronomical data or any kind of data, we can listen to it and hear patterns in a way that is much more sensitive than even our visual system.
1: So there are applications where sound is preferable as a means of representation.
2: Absolutely. There are circumstances where we use sound because vision isn't really available, but as you're pointing out, there are many situations where we use sound because it's the best thing we got. You know, it's the best tool in many circumstances. When we talk about
1: astronomy and sonification, how do we ensure that the sounds used are meaningful? You know, how do you decide upon what a solar flare should sound like, for example?
2: Much of astronomy and much of almost any kind of science boils down to following the changes in one particular data variable so for example we might want to know the the price of a stock or we might want to know our altitude or we might in astronomy want to know how much light is absorbed versus how much light is transmitted when a planet goes in front of a star so it often boils down to what basically is a graph a single series of data and in that case designing that auditory graph comes down to a couple of fundamental issues one there are capabilities and natural abilities of our auditory system and we can leverage that to make sure the design of that auditory graph is as good as it can be for example we're really good at detecting changes in pitch bomb 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 bomb. we're not so good at detecting changes in loudness so if something is quite soft or medium soft or louder, or louder, or louder. We can't really deal with that kind of information. So we know what makes for a good display, pitch, timing, tempo, and so on. And we can leverage that and use that to make our auditory graphs as compelling and as understandable as possible. Separate from that is tradition. So we use the Cartesian graphing system with an x-axis and a y-axis, the kinds of graphs that we're familiar with visually, we use those largely because someone said so. You know, They were invented, this Cartesian graphing system was invented and became a tradition or a de facto standard. We are starting to get some of those standards in the auditory display world as well. For example, often we use pitch, or you know, the frequency of, of a sound, bum, 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 to represent increases or decreases in the data. And we often will represent time to represent the x-axis, if you will. So these conventions are becoming more and more popular. But beyond that, it becomes a design activity. It becomes an effort for someone to say, I want my data to represent something like the intensity of a solar flare. And if that's never been done before, that person is basically inventing or designing that auditory display. That is a challenge because then they have to tell us and teach us how to listen to what they've created. And if it's the first time that we've listened to it, it can be a challenge. But, you know, this combination of knowing what works and communicating the new stuff that we're inventing, Eventually, people will understand how to listen to what we're hearing.
1: But as yet, in the field of astronomy, there's no standard way of translating data into sound. Anita Zanella again.
0: It's not clear how to translate data into sound in a way that is, let's say, always the same and always understandable. So, for example, we can decide to translate the luminosity of an astronomical object into different sound parameters, that could be pitch or timbre or the volume of the sound. So there is not a unique uh, choice. Of course, the choice is arbitrary, but what we are learning as astronomers from the uh, people doing, uh, the researchers doing psychoacoustics, is that there are some mappings, naming some translations, that are more useful than others and more effective than others. And this depends on the kind of task that we need to carry out. If we need to classify objects, so, for example, to distinguish red and dead galaxies from blue and star forming ones, then we can use tombre because our ear is very good at distinguishing tombre. And tombre is a very effective parameter for classification purposes. If we want instead to compare some stars that are brighter than others, then we should use pitch because our ear is very good at distinguishing very subtle differences in pitches. So, one key thing to do to start and standardize the use of sound for astronomy is really to interact with people that work with sound since uh, ages, (laughs) such as the psychologists working with the psychoacoustics, but also the sound designers, the engineers. And to this aim, we are really starting to create a network of people with different backgrounds that interact during workshops and, uh, and really start working together on creating these standards.
1: And you, as I understand it, are collaborating at the moment with the psychology department at Padova University, is that correct?
0: That's correct. I have now an ongoing collaboration with Professor Massimo Grassi. We are co-supervising a PhD student, Lucrezia Aguiotto. She just started a few months ago, and the goal of her PhD is really to understand what are the most effective mappings and ways of uh, translating astronomical data into sound starting from the backgrounds that they have as uh, as psychoacoustic researchers and applying it to the field of astronomy.
2: We can be very sophisticated with the sonification and the auditory displays that we create. We can represent many channels of data simultaneously changing. We can represent things with a dramatic range from very, very small numbers to very, very large numbers. The issue becomes one of training and practice and knowing your audience. If you are designing something for school kids, you're only gonna have a very simple visual graph and a very simple auditory graph. And we spend a lot of time teaching them how to listen, just like we teach them how to look at a visual graph. If you are working with scientists who are much more familiar with a data set and understand the underlying sciences, they can listen to and they can digest a much more rich and sophisticated display, whether it's visual or auditory. And so we will give them as much detail and complexity as they want.
1: To some people, this idea of sonification might sound like there's an artificial side to it, you know, that you're creating this, that you're layering it over the data. But then again, the way in which we interpret data has always involved representation, hasn't it?
2: Generally speaking, you're absolutely right. All of our visual representation of data is uh, artificial. Even something as simple as the temperature of the air when it's represented in a thermometer is represented in a fairly arbitrary way. The same is true in many cases for sound. When we're representing temperature using sound, bomb, 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 That's an arbitrary mapping, just like the height of the bar in a thermometer is a somewhat arbitrary mapping. Yes, in a thermometer, the height of the the mercury is related to the actual temperature of the air, but we can do similar things with sound. The key is to make sure that people understand what they are seeing and what they are hearing and can then interpret it and extract the meaning that you are trying to convey to them.
1: We heard earlier about the benefits of a sonified approach for increasing inclusivity. And one person who has first-hand experience of that is Nicholas Bonn from the University of Portsmouth. He's an astronomer by training and he's
3: also significantly visually impaired. So I used to be a researcher. Now most of my job is as a public engagement and outreach person. So I sort of I go out and I talk to people about science. But if I did want to dip back into research again, I think sonification really has a lot of potential for me to sort of start accessing data more easily, start working with that data again. So much of astronomy relies really heavily on the visual. And a lot of the time doing that doesn't necessarily make sense because so much of the universe isn't actually visible to us. It's outside the visible spectrum. We're looking at things in X-ray, radio, ultraviolet, all of these wavelengths of light that we can't actually see with our eyes. But also a lot of the time we're detecting signals and we still insist on sort of turning these into individual things like graphs and plots. So I think particularly for people who are vision impaired and blind, that visual element for astronomy can actually make it really difficult to access the subject. and. In some cases as well i think it's actually it makes a lot more sense to turn things into sound if we're sort of listening to a signal we might actually pick up things we might not see in a plot if we're listening to data that's really repetitive if there's sort of a a dip in the light levels of something we're observing and that dip is relatively regular listening to that signal will actually reveal that pattern a lot better than than maybe sort of looking at that plot as well i think sonification just really opens up the subject, it just allows other modes of access that I think will make it more accessible for lots of people. Because yeah, one of the things I always struggled with as a researcher was the visual element, having to to create these really visual plots for other people to look at or ha- having to interpret other people's visual data.
1: Now tell us about the work that you do, the outreach work that you
3: do using sonification. Previously, a lot of the work I've done with Outreach and Public Engagement has been using tactile graphics. So we we created these sort of 3D printed tactile versions of astronomy images that people can feel. And they're sort of an analogue for the visual images you'd be looking at. The tactile features kind of relate to the brightness in the image. So you can run your fingertips over the top and you can sort of feel the change of brightness, feel the shapes in those images. In the spirit of Braille, I suppose. Yeah, very similar to Braille, but I guess multi-level. So these things are sort of three millimeters high. So you can really feel the sort of the slope when the brightness is increasing gradually and and things like that. We always try to include a visual element in those as well, though, so that people with a bit of usable vision or people who can see perfectly well could sort of look at an image and then feel what they were seeing on sort of the other side of these tactile plates. More recently, what we started really looking at is incorporating an audio element into those as well and trying to work out how we can supplement that tactile and that, that visual sort of sense with sound as well. Where we've really been having a lot of success with sound is in systems that are in motion. So a really good example is a planetarium show that I worked on with another astronomer from Newcastle in the UK. And we created the soundscape where you could hear the planets in the solar system moving around you. That's a really difficult thing to describe necessarily and to sort of get the sense across of that motion of that system. But being able to listen to those planets sort of moving around you in space was actually a really powerful thing. And I think for, yeah, a lot of the young people who've experienced that show, it was just a really nice example of how sonification can sort of make that type of thing a bit more accessible. And who's your target audience with this kind of work? Yeah. So generally we we tend to work with younger school kids. And a lot of the reason for that is a lot of kids, as they get older, and their friends, their maybe their teachers, and this is always coming from a good place, maybe even their parents, will sort of suggest to them, maybe you should do this particular thing because this other subject is going to be too difficult for you. And so what we're really trying to do by working with young people is show them that if this is something they're passionate about, if astronomy is something that they want to do, if they want to study physics, if they want to study maths, there's always going to be a way that they can access it that will work for them. They just might need to think outside the box and do things a little bit differently. So yeah, we we wanna provide this really positive example early on of, of how accessibility can work and how they can find a way to access things that'll work for them. There are always challenges. What are the challenges with using sonification in this way? So not everybody is going to like listening to things, and sometimes it can be really difficult to make things sound nice as well. And so particularly when you're engaging with the public, you you want your sounds to be pleasant to listen to, otherwise people will have a negative reaction and they'll, they'll sort of turn off, they won't listen. We also come across people who are quite noise sensitive, so that that can be a big issue as well. And of course, sound has real issues for the the deaf community as well. We have to be really careful that we're not locking audiences out because we're relying too heavily on sound as well. So I, I think having that multimodal approach, making sure that we're combining visual with tactile, with with audio as much as we possibly can, just means that we're, we're making what we're doing much more accessible for everybody. So, yeah, so many things we can tap into using sound that'll sort of either supplement what we can see or will be better, I guess, than what we can see in a lot of cases as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what you're listening to, by the way, is a sonified representation of a planet transiting in front of a star. Now let's move sideways just a bit.
4: My name is Professor Bill Chaplin. I'm a professor of astrophysics and head of the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Birmingham. At the moment, my focus is sort of to better understand, get a better handle at the moment on the sun's changing outputs and emissions and how we can relate that as well to the similar patterns that we see in other stars and then my other focus is on preparations for a, an upcoming European Space Agency mission called PLATO, and that's going to be searching for analogues of the Sun and the Earth elsewhere in our galaxy, but also as well, we'll be characterising the host stars of the planets that we discover.
1: Professor Chaplin practises what's called astroseismology, and it too involves a form of listening. He's interested in the sounds that occur within stars. Now, the best way I can explain it is to say, imagine that a star is like a giant upset celestial tummy, a stomach rumbling and grumbling, and it's all that gurgling that Professor Chaplin is trying to record. That's my explanation. And now, here's the way an astro-seismologist would explain it. Bill Chaplin.
4: So the sun is a huge, great, big ball of hot ionised gas. It's got nuclear reactions that are taking place in its core fusion reactions which are burning hydrogen into helium and this is generating the energy that maintains and powers the sun and throughout most of the interior volume of the sun all of that energy is transported outwards by radiation but when we get to the outer parts of the sun there's another mechanism that takes over transporting that energy outwards and which is convection now in the outermost layers of the sun because we've got parcels of gas that are moving around and carrying their energy with them, things get very turbulent right near the surface of the sun, so just beneath the visible surface. So you've got these parcels of gas that are buffeting into one another, and that makes changes in pressure in the gas. And if you have a change in pressure in a gas, that's just a sound wave. So stars act as natural generators of sound, but as well, even though they are not solid objects, so they're big balls of gas as well, so they don't have a solid edge, they still act as a natural cavity to trap that sound as well. And so just in the same way that a wind instrument like an oboe or or a clarinet resonates because it has sound trapped inside it, the same is true of a star.
1: And how then do you pick up on those sounds? What's the mechanism?
4: So instead of the equivalent of, you know, with, with a musical instrument, we listen to it, but instead with a star, what we do is we either measure the speed at which the surface of the star is breathing in and out so you imagine this big ball of gas the trap sound inside making it resonate as it does so it periodically breathes in and out so we can either measure the change in the speed at which the visible surface of the star we see is moving towards or away from us or alternatively we can measure the changing brightness of the star If we record those changes, you get something that looks a bit like a seismograph trace and essentially what we're doing then is we're picking up all that information about those trapped standing sound waves inside the star and we're able to get the same information we would from analysing the frequency content of the notes and the tones produced by a, a musical instrument.
1: And do you take that data, that information, do you take it and then sonify it as with data sonification or isn't that part of this process?
4: We do actually, and we tend to do it actually quite often for um, a lot of outreach and engagement activity. In, in terms of explaining the physics of what we're doing, again, does that direct analogy with musical instruments. And it's quite a nice way, I think, to relate the physics of what's happening in the star to something that people have, you know, everyday experience of. And by turning these traces of the brightness as a function of time, you can literally sonify it and sort of do the equivalent of hearing what the star would sound like. You have to raise, if you like, the pitch of the notes of the star by a, a few octaves because the, so a star like the sun the dominant period at which it's breathing in and out corresponds to a period of about five minutes. And if you turn that into an equivalent frequency, it's too low a frequency to be audible. So what we do is we can, you know, sonify the data and then use that to help sort of explain and relate what we're doing to a musical instrument. So just one quick example of that. If you imagine you're in a theater, Hidden behind a curtain, you've got two people. One person's playing a a little piccolo trumpet. One person's playing a big tuba. Everyone would be able to say, well, okay, I'd I'd expect the little piccolo trumpet to be the one that's playing the high-pitched notes, and the big tuba will be playing the low-pitched tones. Without having to see, you know, the person playing the instrument, just from listening to that, you can intuit that. Similar thing for stars. Smaller stars tend to breathe in and out much more rapidly big stars tend to take their time. They breathe in and out much more slowly. And that's kind of the equivalent of, you know, big tuba, lower pitch tones, corresponds to your your big star that's breathing in and out more slowly. Little piccolo trumpet, higher pitch tones, equivalent of a little star which is breathing in and out much more rapidly.
1: And what can we learn from astroseismology?
4: When we discovered, for example, the fact that The sun was resonating, the entire sun was resonating in this way. And actually that discovery was actually made on the roof of one of the physics buildings, actually the next building along from me here in Birmingham. That was a a really, really big discovery because it opens up the way for us to be able to look inside stars and to see actually what they look like, what their structures like inside, to be able to do the equivalent of an ultrasound scan and prior to this discovery we had no way of actually peeling away the the surface of a star and actually seeing inside and actually seeing really what do stars actually actually genuinely look like so by measuring if you like the pitch of the overtones at which a star resonates we get information then about the structure of the star we get information about that how rapidly the insides of stars are spinning so this has really opened up possibilities for us to be able to really validate and test our theories of how we think stars evolve over time, what they look like inside. It's relevant for furthering our understanding of the sun, for getting a better handle on, for example, the sun's changing outputs and emissions which affect us here on Earth, but also as well helping us to understand that relationship between stars elsewhere in the galaxy and any planets they may host. As we discover that planets are very, very common elsewhere in the galaxy, obviously there's a focus on trying to find potentially habitable planets around other stars. And in order to understand the potential habitability of those planets, we need to understand the host star, its properties, how it's evolved over time, its changing outputs and emissions. And these are all things as well that astro-seismology opens the door to us being able to understand. Astronomer Bill Chaplin there.
1: We also heard today from doctors Anita Zanella, Bruce Walker and Nicholas Bonn. Next time on Future Tense, a feature interview with award-winning historian Frank Dakota. Frank is famous for his extensive research involving Chinese archives, and he warns that our western understanding of the Chinese economy and where it's heading is seriously flawed.
5: There seems to be an illusion or an idea that China somehow is different. That, I think, summarizes the whole approach. China is different. We can talk about Kenya, Zimbabwe, or Japan, or South Korea, or Argentina. But the moment we talk about China, oh, things are different, slightly racist, really, as if normal laws of economics and politics and human behavior somehow uh, disappear the moment we talk about China. I've spent 30 years watching China experts tell us that China was going to become a thriving democracy with political reform and its economy was doing so incredibly well. Well, they were wrong. But since it is a pretty robust socialist economy, by robust, I mean there's a pretty good grip on the means of production, I think a, a sudden collapse is extremely unlikely. You will see a retreat. You will see something that Chairman Mao already proposed during a particular phase of the Cultural Revolution. It's called self-reliance. It's also a notion that the North Koreans used. We must rely on our own forces. In other words, more of the retreat behind a Great Wall and more of an attempt to create a reasonably self-contained, self-reliant economic entity.
1: A feature interview with Frank Dakota That's next on Future Tense. Until then, from me, Anthony Fennell, and my co-creator, Karen Savanovitz, cheers. And bye for now.
4: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC
1: Listen app.